0: This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Many of us read Roald Dahl's best-selling book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as kids. I know that's where my childhood fascination with chocolate making began. Over the years, I've encountered many people who have found joy and passion in chocolate making. It's amazing what can be accomplished with chocolate and the right mold. I've seen chocolate shaped like the TARDIS from Doctor Who at a party and encountered an entire chessboard made of from chocolate while on holiday. I discovered dark chocolate with flower petals in a little store tucked away in my neighborhood. Dark or white, fused with nuts or fruit, the possibilities are endless. And there's probably a kind of chocolate that everybody loves. Today, we meet the blind chocolatier. It's time to put your finger on The Pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Jyothi Gupta and it's really good to be with you uh, on the program today, this Easter Sunday morning. Um, I hate to say it, but the monologue sounded less like a monologue and more like a love letter to chocolate. And if you haven't figured it out yet, that's what we're talking about today. Now, for all that I love chocolate, I readily admit that I am a disaster when it comes to doing anything other than making hot chocolate. So it got me thinking that quite possibly there was somebody out there somewhere who was blind, like I am but who had somehow managed to turn their love of chocolate not only into a hobby, but into a profession. And so, of course, I hit the old Google machine, and I came across our guest today. Stuart Han is the founder of The Blind Chocolatier. He joins us today from Staveley, which is in the Lake District in England. Hello, and welcome to the program. Oh yeah. So Stuart, before you got into making chocolates, you were, in fact, a pastry chef. What drew you to that line of work?
1: Um, I'd, I'd say it's probably just uh, with the area, I mean, there's a lot of hospitality and I grew up in a pub so and I've always liked making cakes and stuff and decided to go to Kendall College, um, which is just five minutes down the road where I learned uh, catering and then went to go and work at a hotel um, just on the way to Ambleside, which is just near Windermere.
0: Mm. Now, here you are working at a hotel and it looks like you are in a career that you like and you clearly enjoy your work. When do you start to notice that things are going pear-shaped with your vision?
1: It was about six years ago and I thought I needed glasses. So I went to the opticians and then they referred me to the hospital because they couldn't find out what was wrong with me. And it turns out I've got a rare eye disease called Leber's Optic Heredity Neuropathy, L-O-H-N for short. And, but because it's a rare eye condition, it took over a year of going to hospital appointments to actually find out what it was.
0: That's something I wanted to ask you about because a lot of people have heard about glaucoma. A lot of people have heard about cataracts. Here you were dealing with not only the loss of your vision, but also a diagnosis that wasn't apparent and that you were trying to figure out what was actually going on with you tell me about that time in your life what what was that like for you were you frustrated were you anxious
1: i was probably frustrated and a little bit scared because the hotel i was working for um they weren't completely supportive at the start they let me work a lot of hours and were telling me off for not doing the job properly when they knew there was problems with my eyes and I actually said to them, I don't even know I'm going to be able to wake up the next day and see properly. And But then once I had the diagnosis and it was, they said to us, they basically made a job for us being like a store man and I could go back to work again, which was the whole thing I was wanting to do in the first place. And then Mm -hmm. from that, I ended up because I was the pastry chef and then I went back to being the pastry chef. So I earned earned my job back again just with the right help.
0: I'm going to come back to that because so much of the conversations we have about employment with people with disabilities is about having the right attitude towards employees with disabilities and putting in place accommodations that aren't always expensive or hard to accomplish. But just before that, this might be the first time that many people are hearing about Libra's hereditary optic neuropathy. I know it's the first time I'm hearing about it. Can you tell us a little bit more about the condition and what it meant for your vision to have that particular condition?
1: Yeah, so it's a hereditary um, condition that's from the maternal side, but no one in my family knew that they had it. So my mum, and my nan are carriers, but it mainly comes out in males when you're roughly 25 and it affects the inside vision and can go like from being perfect vision to blurry and you can't see the detail within a couple of months. But it won't get any worse, so it won't deteriorate. And they're working on stem cell trials now, but they've not quite finished them yet. So there is hope in the future that they might be able to fix it because it affects the optic nerve.
0: Describe for us a little bit what the atmosphere is like in a kitchen and what sort of accommodations they would have had to make for you to account for the fact that your vision wasn't quite where it used to be.
1: Um, So I got a little handheld magnifier, which I use for looking at labels and reading small uh, bits of writing. And because I was the head pastry chef, I did all the menus and all the planning so that bit was a bit easier for me because I didn't have to read other people's work. I just knew like what was going on and what I needed to do. And I got myself an iPad for all my recipes and so I could get on the internet and bake stuff. But then I just had to make sure I was more careful, like set the section out neatly, make sure there's no stuff that could be cross-contaminated, like getting little bits of pipe and bag or something in cakes and once. It was set out and easy for us. It wasn't really much different than normal. I just had to double check that I was doing stuff right. And if I was ever unsure, just ask someone to check stuff.
0: With all of those accommodations that you put in place for yourself, was there ever a moment when you were struggling with your diagnosis that you questioned whether you would be able to continue in your line of work?
1: There was a few times, but it was mainly when we were really busy. So I knew I could do it. I just had to give myself a bit more time and some some days like if i'm really tired my vision got a little bit worse or if i had a bad headache and i would just take a bit of time out and, and then carry on
0: mm-hmm. and what about the people around you uh, were they willing to work with you to make a few adjustments to how things were done i mean it wasn't just you that needed to avoid cross-contamination I would imagine other people needed to be mindful of their workstations as well and where they put things so you didn't knock things over or run into something Uh, what were the people around you like what was their response like
1: yeah so once everybody knew what was going on everyone was more aware and I just said if I need that I need that but it was a reasonably big kitchen that we were in so everyone had enough space and being the pastry chef you're not By the hot side as much anyway but even when it was busy I still helped out that side so I could do everything I just had to like look more and and double check things.
0: Mm -hmm. Well let's fast forward a little bit so here you are you've had this diagnosis uh, you've managed to sort of learn the ropes again to become a pastry chef at what point do you make a decision to pivot and open your own chocolate store?
1: Um, Well I've always done chocolates with my pastry work but I just decided that I want to have my own business so I can structure it how I want and there's lots of people doing cakes and breads and stuff but there wasn't really many people doing chocolates that were like artisan and handmade and originally I was going to call the business late district chocolates but everyone said you should go with the blind chocolate because that's what mm. uh, is going to stand out and make people uh, ca- catch the shop and come in
0: mm-hmm. I was going to ask you I mean part of it is no doubt to try and get it to stand out a little bit um, uh, it's so hard for any small business to carve out a niche but were you also hoping given your own experience with losing your vision later in life and having to make adjustments and talking to people about your changed vision were you also hoping that people would come in they'd buy your chocolates but they would also think about the fact that the chef was someone who was blind but they managed to keep doing that thing that they really love so that blind people aren't incapable by definition
1: yes and that's also part of the reason why I decided to call it the blind chocolate so people sort of like when they were coming in the shop because I don't look um like I'm blind I don't like so some people don't notice at least when they come in they know and obviously I like there's you can do any job it doesn't matter what your conditions are.
0: My name is Jyothi Gupta and my guest today is Stuart Han who is the founder of The Blind Chocolatier. He's joining us today from Staveley which is in the Lake District in England. Stuart, tell us a little bit about your chocolates. I mean, that's uh, really what we're here to talk about. Give us a sense of what we would find if we were to walk into your store.
1: So I've got a selection of of chocolate bars and I've got um, dark ones with sea salt in. I'm working on a dark one with fruit and nut and just a plain dark one, which are also all vegan. And I've got Flavored milk chocolate and white chocolate ones, and then I've got a range of filled chocolates with ganache inside, some with some with marzipan, uh, some with with fondant. And I also do bespoke stuff. So, like, I've just finished doing all my Easter orders. Um, but even with all the lockdowns, has gone well this year because it's only me second uh, proper Easter, and. Mm-hmm. I do stuff for people's afternoon teas as well. I do like little chocolate plant pots for one hotel.
0: Uh, Tell me a little bit about the pandemic. I mean, have people been buying and eating more chocolate? Has it been good for business? Uh, Are you still operating your store or is your business just online now because of the lockdown? Where are things at now because of the pandemic?
1: So I'm due to open back up uh, on the 12th of April. And uh, I was shut for a month in November as well. But I was open for December, so I had a good, good Christmas with mm. people wanting to shop and support local. And the very first April lockdown, I was still at a hotel, so that that was okay. But now, hopefully, all the lockdowns are over, and it should be getting back to normal soon. But people I have definitely so. been wanting more luxuries
0: yeah i can i can I can completely agree with that i I tend to be eating more chocolate than maybe I would otherwise uh, tell me a little bit about the actual art of making chocolate. Uh, is it extremely visual because the few times i 've tried and I will readily admit i've been it 's been a disaster so before you tell us what I might have been doing wrong, give us an idea of what the process is actually like and whether it is in fact a very visual process yes
1: yeah, so it 's definitely a visual process like most of my chocolates are all got colorings in or different colors of chocolate so you get um cocoa butter and powdered coloring and mix them together and then some of them i actually spray paint them with a gun Uh, so you get like a nice coating of the color and then you if you're doing a white chocolate one pour the the tempered white chocolate in and then tap all the excess chocolate out and then you get a nice little shell with whatever pattern and color you've put on. Then you make a a ganache, which is cream and chocolate. And so if I do an orange one, I put um, fresh orange juice into it and that's your filling.
0: Sounds delicious, (laughs) making me hungry. Um, Tell me a little bit about whether you needed to modify the process at all for yourself as as the blind chocolatier, uh, or were you able to manage with just the magnifier to keep track of uh, the different ingredients?
1: Uh, no, I didn't have to modify any, anything because the the machines have got have got a LCD screen on which is which has got a, a backlit light in it as well. So I, I have to look closely, but they're big enough for me to see the numbers because mm-hmm. you've got to heat the chocolate up and then you put more chocolate in to bring the temperature down and heat it back up slightly. That's the the tempering, and I've got machines to do that, but they're no different than if anyone else was to do it
0: all right well tell you what um for those of us who don't have the machines but we still want to try our hand at oh i don't know chocolate covered strawberries or something that you can try to make at home what are some of the things you want to keep in mind and what are some of the things you want to avoid
1: so if you were to do it in a microwave you want to have it in your in the bowl that's suitable for the microwave with the chocolate full to the top because it melts better and then literally put it in the microwave for a few seconds take it out stir it. it is a bit of a lengthy process but if you just put it in the microwave it's really easy to burn it and Mm -hmm. you don't want to get chocolate too hot or get water anywhere near it because it can uh, ruin the chocolate and then it won't set
0: See, this is what I've been doing. Every time I've tried to make chocolate, I've burnt the chocolate. So what have I been doing wrong? Have I been leaving it on the flame too long? Have I been putting it in the microwave too long?
1: Yes. um, So if you burn it, it just means it's got too hot. So when I do it in the microwave, it's literally like 10 10 seconds and then take it out and stir it. And then it's just till it's three quarters melted. Take it out and then the heat from the chocolate should melt the other the other quarter.
0: Yeah. Well, see, I've been using, I've been probably putting it in there for 30 seconds and making a complete hash of it. Maybe I should just stick to buying my chocolate. As Stuart, by any chance, if you got an order from all the way over in Canada, would you be willing to ship it out?
1: Um, I don't ship at the moment, but it's something I could look into, uh, ship it internationally.
0: Well, you know, just keep growing, right? Uh, Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, some of your early experiences with, with your changing vision. I believe your mom came across a show called uh, Kitchen Impossible and uh, encountered a chef who was blind. Tell us a little bit about what happened there.
1: Yep. So it was actually, the TV program was by Michelle Rue Jr. And it was for getting people with disabilities into uh, manual working jobs in hospitality. And it was actually the same time mm. when I was off work and they had a, sh- a chef on there who I think he was in the army and then lost his vision and they were getting him to do the chef in. But um, Michelle Rue Jr. actually rung my mum up and spoke. And I've still not forgiven her for not passing my number on to, to speak to me. But <laughs> it's
0: <laughs> <laughs> So... Do you think that having a visual impairment, do you think it's at all given you an edge as a chocolatier? Because we often think about how things become more complicated when you have a visual visual impairment or a visual problem. We don't really think about the ways in which it might have made you a more creative or a more um, artistic chocolatier. What do you think?
1: Um, I think it might have helped slightly, but probably only the business name because it gets people to look and then... They try the chocolates and then they're gonna, they have a like when they don't, and most of people come back. But I do have a couple of people that come in the tourists that have come in the shop and they said, You're not blind, and to explain it. And and then they actually feel sorry and buy stuff, so it works that way as well.
0: Well, uh, that's something, Um, you know, there's a lot of people who get to hear that even, you know, it's a very common experience. Um, I know women who are blind, who get told things like, you don't look blind, or uh, you're too pretty to be blind. Uh, Do you think that part of the problem is, uh, you know, not having a visual indicator that you're blind, maybe not having a white cane or a guide dog, does that make people treat you differently um not just in in your role as a chocolatier but just as a a blind person moving through the world i mean people may not realize why you're going up close to look at a a sign or you know maybe why you're peering at things what has your experience been like as someone who moves to the world but isn't it isn't obvious that they have a visual impairment
1: yeah i'd say there's definitely been a couple of experiences where people if i bump into them or oh, um, not going the way you're supposed to be going because I don't I don't want to have a cane and I, and I don't need a guide dog so once you explain mm. to them you understand but at first sometimes people just think you're being a bit rude but then mm. it's just they should um, be more aware as well but obviously not everyone mm. is unless you've got someone that's got conditions you don't always think about them
0: that's true. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, there's a lot of a, a lot of people who do charity work to try and spread awareness about blindness. And one of the ways in which they do that here in Canada is through the blind driving, uh, which, you know, you you're, you might be blind and you're behind the wheel of a car and a sighted person kind of talks you through it so that you can drive around the track. Is that something that you've ever had a chance to try?
1: Yes, yeah, so I've done that twice. Once uh raised money for guide dogs and then we went to Newcastle Nissan and we were in a driving instructors car and you drive around the test track and then I've been to another one where mm. it was in a little Cachem uh, sports car and there was a, a track you drive around as well so that, that was quite good because one of the thing, the main thing I miss is um, driving because I used to like my cars but obviously mm. it's not very wise driving is- when you can't see anymore
0: true but at least you get to experience it after a fashion if you if you um if you take part in the blind driving Uh, did you enjoy just being behind the wheel of a car or was it was it a pale imitation of the real thing
1: no i enjoyed it um but it was a little bit nervy when on the nissan one it was just basically a big oval and i couldn't see the corner but i was doing um just up to 100 miles an hour so uh it was probably quite a good job. I couldn't see the driving instructor's face. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's probably for the best. Uh, listen, I mean, we've been talking a lot about chocolates and I'm sure it's a way for you to express your creativity as well. Is there a project that you undertook that was really ambitious or out there? Uh, something that would really make a statement?
1: Um, oof, I don't know. I've, I've just done a charity <laughs> raffle, but I wouldn't say it's really ambitious and out there, but that's for guide dogs in a local charity I don't I don't I don't really know what to say for that I...
0: oh no that's fine and you never know you might have an you might have a moment of inspiration uh you know you said that you yourself could easily pass as not having a visual impairment and yet you've really chosen to embrace the blindness community locally uh through charity and other efforts why was it so important for you to embrace that part of your identity uh, rather than try and sweep it under the rug as so many people might do in your situation
1: um it might probably just because it well it is being now so it's a thing i've got to deal with and you've probably just got to carry on with the cards you dealt with really and make the mm. most of what you've got
0: Oh, sounds good to me uh, You know, just before I let you go I am sure there is someone out there Who is an aspiring pastry chef An aspiring chocolatier And they happen to be blind What advice would you give them?
1: Uh, just have a try uh, With The one good thing with chocolate If it doesn't work You can just melt it down and start again And, and, and I thought you all... would tell them not to Not to start <laughs> No, yeah, well anyone I could was... do anything
0: that sounds good. And also you probably probably want to tell them not to snack on their ingredients, which is the other reason I never really have much success with the chocolate. Yeah. I just start snacking on the ingredients before I have a chance to work with to,
1: them. You've, you've got to taste stuff and so you might as well you've <laughs> got to make sure it's okay for everyone else to have.
0: Yeah, exactly. I like the way you think. Uh Stuart, thank you very much for being on the program today.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: That was Stuart Han, who is the founder of The Blind Chocolatier. He joined us today from Staveley in the Lake District in England. If you missed any of my conversation with Stuart, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're there, don't forget to like, rate, or subscribe. Also head on over to ami.ca forward slash on the pulse for more from me. I'd like to thank Stuart Han for being my guest on the program today. I admit I am feeling excited and inspired now to try and maybe... Make some chocolate, some chocolate covered strawberry. The weather's getting nicer here at home. So. You know, we'll get some of that nice spring, summer produce coming in and maybe I could try my hand at something chocolate related and I will update you and tell you how that all goes for me. Um, I would like to thank my excellent technical producer, Nisreen Abdulmajid. She obviously does a wonderful job on the program. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio and Paula Dineen is our technical supervisor. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to send us a tweet right to at AMI-audio and use the hashtag Pulse AMI. If you want to send us an email, by all means, write to feedback at ami.ca. Or you can call us at 1-866-509-4545. That's one 509 4545 And do leave us a voicemail along with your permission to play the audio on the program. Of course, you can find Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook as well, and you can find our Facebook page. So I hope that whatever you're doing this long weekend is such an unusual one for many places in, across the country. We're still in lockdown here because of the pandemic. You may not get to visit with family and friends. But I hope you try and find some joy on the long weekend get some rest spend some time uh, maybe connecting with family virtually maybe go on long walks eat some good food try and put your feet up read some good books listen to music and we will catch you with more of the pulse very soon right here until then stay safe everyone and have a wonderful rest of your day